John chapter 19, if you'd like to turn there. This is where we're up to in our study going through the book of John. Possibly John, we'll be reading together. John 19, verses 1 to 16. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews! And he gave him slaps in the face. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you, so that you may know that I find no fruit in him. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify, crucify. Pilate said to them, Take him yourself and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered, and We have a law, and by the law he ought to die, because he made himself out to be the Son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard of the statement, he was even more afraid. And he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You do not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greatest sin. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now, it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. So they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to him, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he then handed him over to them to be crucified. Now, I'd just like to go back a couple of verses in chapter 18. Um, verse 39 Did you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover? Do you wish then that I release for you the king of the Jews? So they cried out again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. And uh, in John, no, yeah, John 18, it says, Barabbas was a robber. And Mark 15, verse 7, it says, And a murderer. So just picture that as a man who was a thief, but he was also a murderer. And uh, he was being offered one Barabbas or Jesus, and of course the people said uh, Jesus. Now I want to read some excerpts from the Book of Mysteries. You've heard me say that before. And you've heard these uh, devotions before, but they fit in so well with the theme of what we're doing. And day 29 of the Book of Mysteries by Jonathan Carr talks about the double. And uh, this is a Bible school in Israel out in the wilderness, and there's a teacher talking to one of the students. In ancient times, said the teacher, on the holiest day of the year, Yom Kippur, 
the Day of Atonement, a unique ceremony took place. The high priest would stand before the people with two goats at his side. Each goat had to be identical in appearance to the other. The high priest would then reach into an urn and pull out one of two lots, one in each hand. Each lot had a different Hebrew word inscribed on it. He then placed one light on the head of the goat to his right and another on the head of the goat to his left. One stone identified the goat that would die as a sacrifice for the sins of the people. The other identified the goat that would be let go. So before there could be a sacrifice, there had to be the presentation of the two goats before the people at the apportioning of the two destinies. What about Messiah? Before his sacrifice, what took place? He was presented before the people for the choosing, for the appointing, or the apportioning of destinies. And there had to be two, I said. So there had to be two men presented before the people. Exactly. And only one could become the sacrifice. So Messiah had to be one of two lives presented before the people in order to be chosen as the sacrifice. And according to the ordinance of Yom Kippur, the other life had to be let go. So what happened to the other life that was presented that day? He was let go. And what was his name? Barabbas. According to the requirements of the ancient ceremony, the two goats, or lives, had to be identical. Messiah was the Son of God, the Son of the Father. Do you know what the name of Barabbas means? No. Barabbas comes from two Hebrew words, Bar, which means son, and Abba, which means father. Barabbas means son of the father. Two lives, each one bears the name, the son of the father. So the sacrifice and the one set free because of the sacrifice must in some way be identical. So if God were to die in your place, you would have to become like me. You would have to become like you, of flesh and blood and the likeness of sin, it would become your identical. So interesting, isn't it? So many comparisons through the scriptures, uh, things that were fulfilled in the life of Jesus and so on. Verse 1 of chapter 19, Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. We can read these words so quickly, but do we really understand what um, Jesus and others who were scourged must have gone through? Uh, who's seen the movie The Passion of the Christ? One, two, or half of you. Okay. It's really worth seeing. It's, it's pretty gruesome in many ways, and yet it gives us an idea of what Jesus went through uh, in his suffering. And uh, in that movie, there's an amazing depiction of the suffering of Jesus, including whipping and crucifixion. Have any of you heard the actor who played the part of Jesus um, speak before? You can go on YouTube and you can look. His name is um, Jim Cavizel, C-A-V-I-E-Z-E-L, Jim Cavizel. And uh, there's an interview of him in the, in the large church service where the pastor's talking to him and you know, he's responding to the questions. Uh, very, very interesting. During the film, the filming of The Passion of the Christ, Jim was struck by lightning three times. And that's a very rare occurrence, as you realise. And one other of the crew was standing alongside of him. He also got struck. But three times he was struck by lightning. Um, during the, the um, scourging, he was accidentally scourged twice. 
um, as he was carrying the cross out towards the, where he was crucified, um, he dislocated his shoulder and he was in excruciating pain. And then he was hoisted on the cross and in the movie, of course, he's acting, he's suffering uh, in the place of Jesus, but he was also in terrible agony because of this dislocated shoulder. And I think it was when he was on the cross, he caught pneumonia and also he got hypothermia. So he experienced some measure of suffering uh, in that particular film. Um, Mel Gibson, who produced that film, said there's a follow-up movie called The Resurrection. So that's in the works right now. It's going to take a little while before it comes out in the theatres, but apparently it's going to be a tremendous movie. I know when I saw the movie, The Passion of the Christ, I thought, oh, if only the end, where the tomb was open, if only that was longer, there was more emphasis on that. But there's a movie coming to follow up on The Passion of the Christ called The Resurrection. And it's been said it could be the greatest movie of all times. Well, the resurrection of Jesus is the greatest thing in human history, isn't it, really? His death and his resurrection. Um, the, the Roman lash, or flagrum, was uh, a, a handle with leather straps on it and a pieces of metal, usually zinc and iron. And um, those that were whipped suffered excruciating agony. And the, the person in charge of the whipping had to be careful that the person didn't die through that so they'd still be able to uh, go and be crucified. But Roman citizens were not scourged, not allowed to be scourged, but of course others were. In the Jewish culture, the maximum lashes allowed was 40. So usually it was 39 less ones, so there was no breaking of any law. But with the Roman law, there was no limit. As many lashes as the overseeing officer would, would uh, think to be applicable. Now, as we see that movie, The Passion of the Christ, I don't think there'll ever be another movie quite like it as far as depicting the suffering of Jesus. Would you agree with those of you who've seen it? I mean, most pictures we see of Jesus, we just see a loincloth when he was naked on the cross and a few scratches and a bit of blood here and there. But the actor was made up. He had to get up at the start of the day at 3 o'clock in the morning because it took such a long time for the makeup artist to put all the stuff on so he looked so terribly um, wounded. And according to Jim, he said, we knew that what I looked like in the movie was nothing like what Jesus would have experienced. It would have been worse. But we, I couldn't be made up to be looking worse because it would have just been so horrible for people to view. So Jesus suffered, and his suffering, as he was lashed and he was crucified, but we see the outward. We see the outward agony. But we can never, ever realise, I believe, what Jesus really went through inwardly as he took upon himself the sin of the world and the punishment for that sin, as the Father turned his back upon him and Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, I want to change gears altogether now. You might say, why do you want to talk about a coronation? Because I want to talk about a coronation. On June 2nd, 1953, Elizabeth was crowned king or queen of England. Anyone ever see that? Did you see it on the TV at the time? Okay, we've got a few older folks here. Yeah. Okay. You can go on YouTube and you can see the coronation. Of course, the movie is not as crazy as it would be today, the colour and everything else. But you can watch the coronation. And I remember as a young boy uh, watching the crowning of Queen Elizabeth. 
Um, she had been in charge for 16 months before her coronation. But the actual coronation date was June the 2nd, 1953. She was crowned on what was called the coronation chair. Anyone been to Westminster Abbey? Because that chair you had, you saw the chair? You think so? Yeah, I was amazed. It's, uh, it's the most famous, probably the most famous piece of furniture in the whole world. Uh, it's known historically as St. Edward's chair or King Edward's chair. The wooden chair on which British monarchs sit when they are invested with regalia and crown uh, at, at their coronations. It was commissioned in 1296, remember that? Remember that? You go back that far? Uh, by King Edward the first to contain the coronation stone of Scotland. Um, the chair was named after Edward the Confessor, who was previously kept, uh, this throne was kept in his shrine in Westminster Abbey, and that's where it is to this day. 38 coronations have been held in the Abbey since 1066, from William the Conqueror to Queen Elizabeth II. Now, don't listen, Paul, but when there's um, celebration, when there's magnificence, grandeur, no one does it like the Brits. Would you agree? I mean, the British just know how to do it, don't they? All the horses and the oh, absolutely amazing. And it was an absolutely amazing ceremony, and all that took place before and after the coronation of Queen Elizabeth. And she was honoured. Well, what's the coronation of Queen Elizabeth got to do with John chapter 19? Well, Jesus experienced the coronation, but it was a mock coronation. The mockery of a regal crown, verses 2 and 3, the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him and came up to him and said, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give him slaps in the face. When you think of the pomp, the extravagance of, say, a British coronation, and use the other coronations, and we think of the coronation of Jesus at that particular time, it certainly was a mock coronation. Uh, verse 2 and 3, uh, verse 4, uh, Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no fault in him. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said, Behold the man. So here was the purple, a sign of royalty, a sign of richness, and yet he was mockingly um, wearing that purple Rogue. Let's read another page from this devotion. It's called The King of the Curse. We sat down in a desert valley surrounded by mountains. Between us was a little thorn bush. The teacher reached for one of the branches, twisted it off, and held it in front of his eyes. Thorns, he said. Did you ever wonder why Messiah wore a crown of thorns? I've always found it a strange thing. Think about it. A crown, a symbol of royalty, power, kingship, wealth, and glory, and yet made not of gold or jewels, but thorns. Why? When man fell, the consequence of that fall was the curse. The ground would now be of thorns and thistles. Thorns were the sign of the curse, the sign of the fallen world, a creation that can no longer bear the fruit it was called to bear but now brings forth thorns, pain, piercing, blood, tears, and destruction. 
He handed me the branch of thorns. They continued that when the crown is placed on a man's head, he becomes king. At that moment, the weight of the kingdom rests on him. So what is the mystery of the crown of thorns that was placed on the head of the Messiah? When the crown of thorns was placed on his head, he became the king of the thorns, the king of the curse. Thorns speak of pain and tears. So the crown of thorns means he will now bear the pain and tears of man. Thorns speak of piercing, so he will be pierced. And the thorns are linked to the curse, and the curse is linked to death. So the crown of thorns remains that the sire will die. He will bear the weight of the curse upon his head. He becomes the king of thorns, the king of the curse. But a crown also signifies authority, I said, one who reigns. Yes, by thus wearing the weight of the curse, he becomes king over it. He becomes king of the curse. And king of the cursed. King of the broken, king of the pierced and wounded, king of the rejected, and king of tears. So all will have fallen, uh, all the, so all who have fallen can come to him and find redemption. For the one who wears the crown has authority over these things, to turn sorrow into joy, death into life, and thorns into blossoms. He who wears the crown is the Lord of the fallen, the king of the thorns. Interesting thoughts, huh? What Jesus went through for us. And of course he had the scepter, the rod, which was just a, a sign of imperial power. Uh, there was the mockery of the derisive homage, king of the Jews. Uh, Pilate was uh, in charge at the time on behalf of um, the emperor Tiberius. And uh, according to Josephus, the historian, Pilate was removed from office um, because he violently suppressed an armed Samaritan movement at Mount Gerizim. Now this obviously was after the crucifixion of Jesus. He was sent back to Rome by the legate of Syria who answered to this before Tiberius, who however had died before he arrived. Nothing is known for certain after this as to what happened to him. But in the 4th century, Eusebius um, claims that tradition relates that Pilate committed suicide after he was recalled to Rome due to the disgrace he was in. So a number of accounts talk about suicide. Uh, others say we're not sure what happened. But think of it. It was Pilate at the time. He was the big man. He had the power of life and death. If only he could have seen ahead. If only he had heeded his wife who had a dream and said, and nothing to do with that man. But he... Um, responded to the people uh, rather than what God would want him to do. But he received a warning. He received a warning. Pilate was warned by his wife, who had a dream not to kill Jesus. Matthew 27, verse 19. Golgotha. I think we kind of, did we use that word today? In Aramaic, it means skull. And we talk about Calvary. Uh, going to Golgotha or to Calvary. Calvary is from the Latin calva, which means bald head or skull. And if you've been to um, the skull in Jerusalem, it's just outside the, the city wall, about 100 metres from the Damascus Gate. And it actually looks like a skull. That's why it was called the skull. Anyone seen that? Okay, you've seen it, so you know what I'm talking about. And when Shirley and I saw it just a, three or four years ago, we were told that just 
just a little while before that the portion of the nose had fallen off. But until recent years, you can see the eyes, the holes of the eyes, and the actual forming of the nose that that had uh, fallen off. But um, it's, it's uh, today that area is a bus station. Lots and lots of buses are there, just outside the wall, near the Damascus Gate. And even though we sing on a green hill far away, actually up on top is a Muslim cemetery now, um, he wasn't crucified on top of the, the skull, he was crucified according to history at the base of the skull, where the buses now gather. Um, skull, Calvary skull, interesting. Let me read just one more from the Book of Mysteries, The Mystery of the Tanah. It was mid-afternoon, he took me into the chamber in the middle of which was a large golden stone model of the Temple of Jerusalem. We were viewing it from what would have been Temple's eastern side, the side closest to the altar of sacrifice. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar, said the teacher. He was reciting a passage of scripture. Two lambs of the first year, day by day continually. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. This, he said, was the law of the Talmud. Talmud was the name given to the sacrifices that were to be offered every day in the temple. So each day the offerings would begin with the sacrifice of the morning lamb and finish with the sacrifice of the evening lamb. All these other sacrifices would come in between the two. Was there a specific ritual to the offering of the Talmud? But the morning lamb would be offered up in the third hour of the day. With its death, the temple trumpets would sound and the temple gates would be opened. Then about the ninth hour, the evening sacrifice would be slain and offered on the altar, at which time all the sacrifices would be finished. So the morning lamb was offered up at the third hour. What time is that? Nine o'clock, said the teacher. And when was Messiah crucified? The same hour, nine in the morning. So as the morning lamb was slain on the altar, the Lamb of God was lifted up on the altar of the cross, and the trumpet sounded to announce the sacrifice, and the temple gates were opened. And the evening lamb, I said, at the ninth hour, what time was that? Three in the afternoon, he said. Isn't that when Messiah died on the cross? It was. So the sacrifice of Messiah began with the offering up of the morning lamb and ended with the offering of the evening lamb. And it all took place during the six hours of the temple sacrifices in between the two lambs, from the first sacrifice to the last. The Lamb of God, said the teacher, is all in all, covering every moment, every need, every sin, every problem, and every answer. He is the Talmud. And you never told me what Talmud means. It means continual, daily, perpetual, always, and forever. And so he will be there for you always and will be your answer continuously, every day, always and forever. For Messiah is the Lamb, and not only the Lamb, but your tongue. So while the Jewish people in that day were going through the rituals, they were all signposts pointing to the one who would come to be the Lamb of God, Jesus himself was crucified, the exact time, the exact day, fulfilling all of these Old Testament types. This is so amazing. I said this before, but let me just say it again, um, because it's good to have truth. I remember years ago I was in um, England and I received a, a letter from a guy who had uh, 
he told me he had listened to a message I had given in England on hope. And he said, on the tenth time of listening, he said, I got. <laughs> he heard that message again and again and again and again and again. Something was happening. His heart was being touched by it, prepared by it, and suddenly the revelation that he was longing for came to him. But he heard that same message ten times. So it's good to repeat things, isn't it? And that's what teachers do. They say something and they repeat it and repeat it and repeat it. Um, she and I have been counselling someone by the internet in another country, and we've been sometimes day after day, sometimes it'll be a few days in between. And uh, we've been not only teaching this person, we've been praying, but teaching. And then just a few days ago, just so wonderful, wasn't it? Wonderful email with all the suffering she's been going through all of her life. Uh, something has happened. And she's now standing on the word as never before. She's putting into practice what she's been endeavoring to do, but with a new understanding because of the light of the word. And she's come through to a new plane. She's so excited about that. And we are excited for her as well. So an exchange took place when Jesus was crucified. Jesus was the sinless offering, the perfect offering, the Lamb of God. He was punished that we might be forgiven. He was made sin with our sinfulness that we might be made righteous with his righteousness. He died our death that we might receive his life. He was wounded so that we might be healed. He bore our shame that we might share his glory. He endured our rejection that we might have his acceptance with the Father. Jesus bore our sorrow that we might experience his joy. He endured our poverty that we might share his abundance. And he was made a curse that we might enter into the blessing. As um, a young evangelist, we were trained, we were taught to preach. We were basically open-air evangelists. We did a lot of our work in the parks, on the beaches, on the streets. And um, we couldn't preach too long because we wanted to stop the crowd and, um, and, and preach to a, to a group of people. So we couldn't have a long sermon, just normally short sermons. Um, but we were taught the importance of the cross. So as a young Christian, as a young evangelist, I would put something in about the cross, the cross, the cross. I did it because it was the right thing to do. You follow? We preach Christ crucified. But as the years have gone by, as I walk with the Lord, as I've read the scriptures as you have as well, uh, the cross has become more and more real and more and more central. It's not just the right thing to do to preach the cross, it's extremely important. The cross and the resurrection, of course. So more and more light comes to us, more and more understanding comes as we um, meditate on different Bible truths and as we speak them. I'm sure you can ask any preacher, any teacher of the Word of God, they will tell you they, they saw a truth in part. And as they began to study, began to preach it, the more they spoke on it, the more they preached on it, the more it became real, a revelation to them. And that's how it is in our lives. Let me just read a few scriptures here. And Cody spoke on some of these same scriptures last week. And I said to him afterwards, I'm going to touch some of these same scriptures. But that's a good thing. Jesus is King of Kings. Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for this reason also God highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, 
so that in the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is yet to come. Think of what we've been considering today, the mockery. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He also is the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, that he made peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And just one through the passage of Scripture, Revelation chapter 4, or chapter 5, uh, John saw the throne of God. And in the midst of the throne, a lamb standing as if slain. Verse 9, Revelation 5, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to the Lamb to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. And I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain, to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea, and all things in them I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honour and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying Amen and the elders fell down and worshipped. What a contrast. The exaltation of Jesus today at the right hand of the Father. Uh, what we're going to experience in the days ahead with the honouring of Jesus and the praises as we join him with multitudes of angels and, and redeemed saints. Jesus is the King of all kings. I want to do one more thing. I want to read what we're going to hear on tape, on video, just a moment. Some of you may have seen this or heard of this before. It's by the late Dr. S.M. Lockridge, who was the pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in San Diego, the USA. And um, if you go online and just put in, that's my king, that's my king, or that's my king, do you know him? Um, <clears throat> three video clips will come up. They're all basically containing the same information. Uh, some have a little bit more, some have a little less than others. So I'll read you what's on one of them, and then we're going to hear this guy himself speak these very words. But because he speaks and it's, it could take you by surprise, um, I want you to hear what he's going to say. So when he does say it, say it himself, it will give you more understanding. The Bible says, My king is the seven-way king. He's the king of the Jews. 
That's a racial king. He's the king of Israel, and that's a national king. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings, and he's the lord of lords. That's my king. Well, I wonder, do you know him? David said, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. My king is a sovereign, sovereign king. No means or of measure can define his limitless love. No far-seeing telescope can bring him into visibility, the coastline of the shoreless supply. No barrier can hinder him from pouring out his blessings. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. And do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's saviour. He's the centrepiece of civilization. He stands in the solitude of himself. He's awesome. He's unique. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He's the loftiest idea of literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. philosophy. He's the supreme problem in high criticism. He's the final document of doctrine and true theology. He's the cardinal necessity of spiritual religion. He's the miracle of the age. He's the superlative of everything good that you chose to call him. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder, do you know him today? He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tribe. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. Well, my king is the king. He's the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. Do you know him? You'll hear him say that. Do you know him? His office is manifold. His promise is sure. His light is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. He reigns in righteousness. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you. And you hear people sleeping in the background. He's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. Well, you can't get him out of your mind. You can't get him off your hand. You can't outlive him. And you can't live without him. The Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. The witnesses couldn't get their testimonies to agree. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. And the grave couldn't hold him. Yes, that's my king. That's my king. Father, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. How long is that? And when you get through all the forevers, then amen and amen. Well... Crucify him, crucify him. Hail, King of the Jews, spitting on his face, beating his face. I tell you, Jesus is the King.
and that is coming that day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. So we're going to have this video clip by this doctor, um, Dr. Lockridge. Uh, just imagine it's a, probably a black church. He's a black preacher and he's very enthusiastic and he's speaking truth. And in the light of what Jesus went through, oh, this is just a wonderful declaration. Thank you. The Bible says he's the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the angels. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he is the Lord of lords. That's my king. Do you know him? No means of measure can define his limitless love. Well, well, he's eternally strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortal grace. He's in fearless power. He's impartial as much. Do you know him? He's God's son. He's a sinner saint. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. Well, he's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. Do you know him? He's the five strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the pride. He's sympathizing and he saves. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the people. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the aged. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the weak. Do you know him? My king is a king of knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's the sole way of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. Do you know him? His life is magnificent. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never ceases. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy. And his burden in life. Yeah. I wish I could describe him to you. But he's
thanks to God in this kitchen. Thanks. He's our mediator. He's our advocate. He is the King of Kings. Father, we thank you so much for Jesus. He was willing to come out of eternal glory to the sin-stricken world. To be born amongst us. To live a sinless life. To die a terrible death. But you raised him from the dead on the third day. And he lives forevermore. And Jesus, we thank you that you're at the right hand of the Father. And we honor you and we magnify you today. Lord, our hearts are stirred as we hear these wonderful declarations of who you are and how great you are. And Lord, we choose to, to follow you all the days of our lives with all of our hearts. Oh God, we want you to have first place in our lives. And so we honor you and we magnify you. We praise you. We worship you this day, our great God. One God, manifest in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We honor you. We honor the God in this day. In the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Please be seated. And let me just ask that question. Do you know him? Do you know him? We were in the last congregation before that pastor that day. Do you know him? It's one thing to know about him. It's another thing to know him. And uh, you've heard me say before, but years back in a Christian gathering, Youth for Christ, I lifted my heart to God who seemed so far away. And in my heart, I wanted to know God. I wanted to know His forgiveness. But He seemed so far away. But I prayed from my heart. Uh, not religious words. I didn't know how to be religious. I just prayed from my heart. Oh God, please forgive me for all of my sins. Jesus, take over my life. It's yours. Just a simple prayer from the heart. And suddenly, I came into a relationship with God. It was just the beginning of that relationship. But that's how it started, by calling upon the Lord, um, welcoming him into my life. Do you know him? If something was to happen before the service finished and we found ourselves in eternity, we would be really be. But we can know Jesus and we can know where we're going uh, for eternity. So I encourage you, if you've never really settled that in your heart, to do so today. If you want Jesus to have first place in your life, you can pray a simple prayer as I did. Oh God, please forgive me all of my sins. Jesus, take over my life. It's yours. And as we do that, we welcome into our life the light of the world. The King of all kings, the Lord of lords. Father, thank you. The gospel is so amazing, and yet it's so simple that even a child can understand. We are sinners. We need a Savior. Jesus died in our place. He took the punishment that we deserved. He was raised from the dead on the third day. He's alive forevermore and he's calling us to follow him. And we would say, Lord, please forgive me all of my sin. Jesus, take over my life. It's yours. Amen.